Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Gregory Nemet, professor at the La Follette School of Public Affairs at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, about a new report that he has co-authored called The State of Carbon Dioxide Removal. I'll ask Greg to help us understand the different ways that carbon dioxide can be removed from the atmosphere and stored safely, and what the public and private sectors are doing to scale up different types of removal technologies. We'll also spend a lot of time talking about what scaling up these technologies might look like on the ground, as well as the risks and challenges, including the concern that relying on carbon removal could reduce the motivation for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Stay with us. Greg Nebbett from the La Follette School of Public Affairs at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome back to Resources Radio. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Greg, we've had you on the show before. You spoke with my co-host, Kristen Hayes, about your book. Uh, I think it was called How Solar Became Cheap, uh, which is a great book. And um, But that was a couple of years ago. So uh, could you remind our listeners how you ended up becoming interested in energy and environmental topics like at a young age or later in life? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Canada. I think my favorite places on the planet are places and lakes in northern Ontario. Learned how to play uh, pond hockey up there, and I still play pond hockey. But around here in Madison, Wisconsin, we have a month less of lake ice than we had, uh, you know, decades ago. And so, you know, that that shortens what we can do outside. Uh, I went on to get a undergraduate degree in geography, which brought into um, my kind of purview environmental studies as from an academic discipline. I took a course in energy back then, took a course in meteorology and climate back then. I think that stayed with me. I ended up working in Silicon Valley for a few years, and I ended up at a think tank there doing a study of comparing innovation in different sectors, in information technology and healthcare and consumer products. And we we put in energy too, just as a comparison. And it was striking to me that, you know, I'd learned in my undergrad training about how important energy issues are. And yet the investment in R&D, the number of scientists and engineers involved, the number of patents that were coming out were all much lower than these other areas, like by an order of magnitude. And so that motivated me to go back to grad school and work on this question of how can policy stimulate innovation in low carbon technology. And so that's what I'm working on now. Yeah, that's great. And today we're going to focus on the subset of technologies that I think we can broadly call carbon dioxide removal. And that's because you are a co-author on this recent report called The State of Carbon Dioxide Removal, the first edition um, of what hopefully will be many editions in the years to come. But before we dig into the details of that analysis, can you start off by just defining this term for us, carbon dioxide removal or CDR, and, and what does it mean in this context? Yes. Uh, Carbon dioxide removal involves capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and storing it durably, either on land, in the ocean, in geological formations, or in products. And for the report, we use the definition of carbon dioxide removal as capturing CO2 from the atmosphere and storing it away for decades to millennia. So, you know, that, that includes many different types of removal, some natural, some using chemical processes, But it intentionally does not include a couple of things that are often uh, commingled with carbon dioxide removal. One is carbon capture and sequestration. So that's avoiding putting CO2 into the atmosphere with capture that we're not including that. And also storing CO2 in short-lived products 
such as in depleted oil reservoirs or using it for beverages, um, that involves capture, but doesn't involve storing it away for decades. So we, we are intentionally uh, quite strict on the definition that we use, but even within that strict definition, there's many different ways to uh, capture CO2 from the atmosphere and store it durably. Great. And we're going to kind of break down what some of those technologies are and, and their kind of relative costs and benefits in a couple minutes. Uh, but before that, just one more uh, kind of background question, which is that the report states that in the next 10 or 15 years, um, this is a particularly important time period for the long-term potential of deploying CDR and particularly like novel CDR technologies. Can you explain why that is? Yeah. I mean, this really comes from uh, work by me and others of looking at historically other technologies. And one thing that you uh, start to understand as you look at many different technologies is there's this early period uh, where the technology exists, it works, um, but it's not well proven. There's a lot of skepticism. It hasn't been scaled up. You don't have supply chains. You may not have clear markets for it. And that's sometimes called the formative phase. And there's a strict definition of it goes from the first commercial plant until 2.5% 2.5% of the ultimate saturation level for that technology. But it, in general, it lasts about 10 to 20 years. And that's where we are with quite a few of the novel carbon dioxide removal uh, technologies today. So the implication there is if you look at historical technologies and think about where we are with carbon dioxide removal technologies, the next 10 to 15 years are the period to de-risk the technology, maybe get the costs down to start to build markets, to develop reliable monitoring and verification, a lot of the things that have been needed for other technologies, we're going to need to do for CDR. And so even if we look at scenarios where most of the big deployment of carbon dioxide removal is later, mid-century and then the later part of the century, uh, that doesn't mean we can wait around until we need it. We really need to be doing purposive investment and policy now to scale up the technology so it's ready to really grow and play a role for climate change. Great. That makes a lot of sense. And as you've sort of alluded to, you know, all of the energy system models that are used in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change process, the IPCC process, um, you know, they indicate that limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees or even 2 degrees by the end of the century will very likely include CDR at large scale. Um, when you look at those particular models, uh, what are the types of technologies that they kind of assume play the role of CDR? And, and what's the maturity level of those technologies that the models are telling us uh, might be needed? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. And one thing that we, in doing this report, you know, one of the funnest things about doing academic research is learning stuff that you didn't know. And we learned quite a bit in this report. And one of the things that we learned was kind of how much CDR there is existing today. And, you know, several of us on the state of CDR report worked for IPCC in the past assessment report that came out last year. Um, but we didn't have a statement about how much CDR there is today in that report. And that's one thing we did a careful job of doing in this report. And so that leads us to say, okay, there's actually two categories of carbon dioxide removal. One we call conventional. That's already well established. It's mostly to do with uh, removing carbon using land and especially using trees. And we're doing about two gigatons, two billion tons a year today. And if we look at the scenarios that you talked about for 1.5 or 2 degrees, we see that we need to about double that removal by 2050. So go from about two that we're doing today 
to four um, by 2050. And that's, you know, doing more with trees, doing more with land, storing more CO2 via photosynthesis in those um, in those places. And then we have the second category that we call novel carbon dioxide removal. And these are technologies that are not well established, but are proven and do exist commercially, just not at scale. And so three that I would mention, maybe four, uh, one is biochar. So taking biological material, pyrolyzing it, so burning it in the absence of oxygen. Another is bioenergy with carbon capture and sequestration. So that's again, taking biological material, putting it into a power plant to combust it, and then capturing the CO2 after it's combusted. So that's a negative emission technology. And then a third one is direct air capture using a chemical process to absorb CO2 and then compressing that CO2 and putting it underground. And then we've got others that are smaller that involve uh, the oceans or maybe uh, using silicates to with a lot of surface area, that means really small particles to absorb uh, CO2. So these are this group of what we call novel technologies, and those don't exist at scale. They're tiny. Altogether, they're about a million tons, and trees today are removing about 2 billion tons. So it's 0.1% of what we have in trees in these novel, but these novel in these models grow to become bigger than the land-based conventional CDR. So that's the real scale-up challenge, and we look at factor of, I think, 1300 is the median uh, scenario for these novel technologies. So the scale up and speed are the real challenge with these novel carbon dioxide removal technologies. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, when we think, let, let's hold on the conventional technologies for a moment. Uh, you mentioned that there's almost two gigatons of removals happening from those conventional technologies. Are those like intentional forestation projects or are those like afforestation or reforestation like activities that have happened naturally because the land has stopped being used for some other purpose. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is all intentional. It's managed land. It might not be intentional, you know, to get carbon credits or to do it for uh, the climate, but it is happening with human managed land that we're having more forests. You know, there's even more that's happening. And this is a little bit uh, technical, but there's even more happening, maybe 6 billion tons that has to do with uh, the atmosphere becoming more saturated with CO2. And so there's this fertilization effect that all the biomass that already exists is growing even more because there's more CO2 in the air. But we don't count that as part of a sustainable carbon removal approach because over time, we rapidly need to reduce our emissions and that will take away from this fertilization effect. So we really just focus on on managed land um, that mostly involves more trees. Great. That makes a lot of sense. And um, last question on these conventional technologies, and we sort of talked about this a little bit on the show in previous episodes, but when we think about the scale up of conventional CDR through trees or other technologies, what are some of the biggest downsides uh, of, uh, of scaling up that approach? I know you mentioned that maybe we're looking at a 2x or something like that uh, to achieve climate goals, but but 2x of you know, a lot of land is a lot of land. So what are some of the downsides of that approach? Yeah, I mean, it's just the, the amount of land is the main thing and then some associated risks associated with that. But yeah, I mean, we can think about genetically engineering trees to be more uh, carbon intensive or to have deeper root systems. And, you know, that's a way to intensify on a given amount of land, how much carbon you could store um, within it. But, you know, there's limits to how much we could do 
with that that are probably limited by photosynthesis itself. But uh, we're also limited by how much land there's available. And it's not just all the land. It's eventually, at some point, we start competing with food for land. And that's when we start to think about there really being limits to this. So one of the useful aspects of working with people that run these integrated assessment models, which we use extensively in this report, is that their models you know, simulate land in competition for growing food, for producing electricity and removing CO2. And so that, you know, that provides a limit to how much, um, how much conventional CDR we do on land. And, but there's ancillary issues with the land impact as well. There's issues with biodiversity. Like you could have a forestry project that removes a lot of CO2 with a very healthy mixed uh, type of trees forest that's well managed but you could also do it in a much more kind of monoculture way where you figure out the tree that's most efficient at removing CO2 quickest and you plant only that. And then it's kind of vulnerable uh, to disease or have some of the other issues that we have when we don't have as much biodiversity. So there's issues, even though we think of photosynthesis as something we know well and trees as something that are very familiar and non-industrial, uh, when we start to scale it up, we do get limits. So we can't do this all with trees. Right. For sure. And there, uh, my recollection is that there are also some concerns about water consumption with afforestation and reforestation. Is that another thing that's on your radar? Uh, I don't think about it that much with forestry. I think for some of the other bioenergy where growing crops, where you might need irrigation to do that, um, then water becomes an issue. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that might be what I'm thinking about. Um, well, let's transition now to some of these more novel technologies that you and your co-authors analyze in the state of the CDR report. Um, you know, there are, as you alluded to, you know, numerous technologies that could scale up theoretically and play a really big role in the future. Can you give us a sense of what governments or the private sector are doing today to bring down some of these costs for technologies like uh, direct air capture or biomass energy with carbon capture? Yeah, I mean, we start to see on the government side, we've seen governments involved in research and development. That wasn't really the case before, but it's starting um, to be so. So that that's helpful to see. Uh, and that's one thing in the report. We surveyed the R&D programs by governments around the world. Uh, what we're seeing on the demand side by governments also is encouraging, although still rather small. So in the U.S., we've had this tax credit called 45Q that uh, was giving $50 a ton for carbon removal and didn't lead to much carbon removal. Um, but now we have a much higher tax credit with the Inflation Reduction Act. And so that really is going to make uh, a market for um, removing CO2. In the past few years, we have had the low carbon fuel standard from California where credits are trading at $200 a ton. And so if you could put the $50 45Q and the $200 low carbon fuel standard credits, put those together, you could compensate your CO2 removal uh, with $250 per ton. And that's what a company, an oil company called Occidental Petroleum has licensed technology from a company called Carbon Engineering and is building the first megaton scale direct air capture plant in Texas based on those um on those incentives. So there is a demand side policy that's been growing. I think to get to this beyond this formative phase, we're going to need more than that. So need stronger, more durable policies. Uh, 
A couple other things I've mentioned that are going in the right direction. So one from governments is there's a proposal in the U.S. Department of Energy to create these direct air capture hubs. And there's a plan for four of those hubs with three and a half billion dollars of investment behind them. That would really make a big uh, a big step. And we'll probably need another set of hubs after that first set of hubs. And we're going to need other countries to be doing their own demonstration projects as well. But if we start to see that, then we really are on the pathway to getting a technology like direct air capture out of this formative phase and into the scale-up phase. And we've done some calculations on previous technologies that say we need to get from about, say, one plant that we'll have in 2024 to something like 100 plants by 2035 to 2040. So that's a big scale-up um, and requires a lot of investment, both public and private. But uh, but it's doable. And then the last thing I'd say is there's been a really important role that governments have played for previous technologies in something called public procurement by intentionally purchasing solar panels or semiconductors or other technologies that the government can actually use. They are able to use their buying power to, to stimulate production in the industry and get the cost down. And so so far, we haven't seen governments doing that, but we have seen the private sector doing that. And there's a payments company called Stripe that's tried to play this role and create a market for CO2 credits that their customers can pay for, their payment customers can pay for, and uh, and getting direct air capture and other carbon removal companies to supply. And that's been scaled up recently to a initiative called Frontier. So it's interesting. These are typically activities that governments would do, public procurement but private companies are stepping up and playing a really important role, in part because governments haven't done that, um, but also in part because these are real existing companies. And so having this technology development happening in the private sector, um, it's it's has some credibility to it. And we don't have to worry about this crowding out effect or moving from government into the private sector. It's already there. So I think that's that's pretty promising as well, what Frontier and Stripe are doing. Yeah, that's really interesting. And when we think about government procurement, oftentimes we think about purchasing concrete or steel, you know, things to build physical infrastructure. In the context of carbon dioxide removal, what would the government theoretically be procuring? Would it be some kind of negative emissions fuel? Would it be the carbon capture and storage or the direct air capture um, facilities themselves? Like, what would the government actually be paying for? Yeah, it's a good question. They could they could be paying for products such as yeah, sustainable aviation fuel or something like that that's produced through direct air capture or other carbon removal technologies, that would be one way to do it. But, you know, the other way to do it is just to set up contracts where governments purchase a certain amount of removed and stored uh, CO2. And we've seen that before. There was an effort in the 1980s called the U.S. Synthetic Fuels Corporation, where the governments were going to buy quantities of these fuels and you buy them in tranches. So, uh, the first amount is at a really high price, but to a limited quantity, and then you have a lower price at a bigger quantity. We've seen very similar for solar, the first in Germany and also in California, where there was guaranteed contracts. We'll pay you 50 cents per kilowatt hour uh, for the next 20 years if you build a solar plant in Germany in 2005, or similarly with different numbers in California a few years later. So you could imagine governments doing that type of contract too, where we say we will buy uh, 10 million tons of CO2 removed from the atmosphere, stored durably with all the verification that's needed, 
And we will be willing to do that at $100 a ton or $150 a ton. And next year, we'll have the same contract and it'll be available at $125, something less. So yeah, I think there there's a precedent and a, a pathway to create markets that way as well. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. One more quick follow-up question to um, your response uh, to the novel CDR technologies and government investments. You mentioned the idea of direct air capture hubs. We actually did an episode recently on hydrogen hubs and how that's working uh, and the process the Department of Energy is going through to select hydrogen hubs. Can you give us a flavor for like what would a direct air capture hub look like? Like what are the sets of infrastructure that you would need and, and why would it be beneficial to have a concentrated set of infrastructure rather than something that's more dispersed? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I guess one thing I'll just say to start is direct air capture, you know, removing CO2 with a chemical process. It's a technology that's been in place for a long time. We've had it in submarines and space shuttles to remove CO2 from human breath. And here we're talking about doing it on a much bigger scale. And it's interesting. There's a couple of approaches. One branch of approaches is basically build a removal facility the size of a coal power plant, a million tons a year. But in reverse, removing a million tons a year. And then we've got another approach that's much more small, modular, shipping container size units that you aggregate together. And that you know looks a bit more like wind power, maybe even a little bit like solar power. So there's two kind of approaches. One is small scale granular. The other is large scale and centralized. And with the DAC hubs, we're talking about doing it the large scale centralized way. And you know part of the reason that you would do a hub is that there is infrastructure associated with it. So with direct air capture, one of the biggest inputs is energy. You need electricity to run pumps and fans, and you need heat to regenerate uh, the solvent. So you need substantial amounts of energy. So that might be helpful to have centralized and accessible and, and see how that works and see what the timing is of running these plants. You have really large plants themselves, and there may be economies of scale to do more than one plant in one place and get the permitting for that and the public acceptance for using that land because these these facilities are not it's a non-negligible amount of land because of all the space that's need to contact uh, contact the air so this is bigger than say a, a coal power plant even though it removes the amount of same amount of co2 as a coal plant would emit so yeah so the, and then there's the removal uh, infrastructure where we uh, compress the CO2, put it into a pipeline, transport it where it's going to be stored. And so there's certainly economies of scale in developing that network too. But I think the, the main point to answer your question is we're talking about large scale centralized technologies with large economies of scale. So it seems the idea is that there's more to gain from doing this in a centralized way with large investment versus small decentralized bets where you put facilities around the country because we're talking about a really large scale technology. It's not the only way to do direct air capture, but it is the model for uh, for these DAC hubs. Yeah, great. Got it. Okay. Um, so when we think about the deployment of DAC technologies or maybe biomass energy with carbon capture, can you help our listeners understand what are the potential downsides of scaling up these technologies? You mentioned energy use with DAC. We've already mentioned water use with biomass energy. What are some other concerns that we might be keeping an eye out for uh, as these technologies get scaled up? Yeah, I mean, I think the way that I kind of separate is, yeah, there's there's land issues. That's number one for any of the carbon removal that involve photosynthesis. Uh, let's be careful about 
which land we use. So that's going to be an issue and it might limit scale up. It could also be a way to do it badly. So uh, avoiding competition with food as much as possible. That's important. Biodiversity we talked about. Access for direct air capture. That's access to energy, heat, and electricity. Uh, for a lot of these technologies, materials are going to be an issue. We are talking about building uh, equipment, building pipelines in most cases. In direct air capture for these large-scale plants, there's a chemical uh, solvent that's used to absorb the CO2. So that needs to be managed and moved around and regenerated and recycled and formulated. So there's inputs on that. And then the last two issues that I would raise are not so much technical ones. One is the jargony term is monitoring, reporting, and verification, which is to say, okay, you say you removed CO2 uh, from the atmosphere, prove that you removed it, and then prove that you've put it somewhere where it's going to stay for a really long time. And in some cases, that's relatively easy to do. So there's a small plant in Iceland right now where the CO2 uh, is removed and comes out as a slurry with water. And then that's injected into these rocks that mineralize. And within a couple of years, it's turned into solid. The CO2 is in the form of solid uh, rock far underneath the ground. And so that's permanent. But if we think about using soils to absorb CO2, we have to measure that flux of CO2 into the soil and then measure the flux out of the soil. And then over time, assess how much CO2 is in that soil. And so the monitoring, reporting, and verification is non-trivial. And the further along we get into that, you know, we are having issues where there are situations where the, the monitoring or the credits that people are getting for doing some of this turn out not to be uh, look as verifiable and as durable as people might think. And so if there's skepticism that creeps in, that's going to be really detrimental to investment and to making markets for these technologies. So there's a lot of effort now to standardize reporting. And I think we need to get to something like the general agreed on principles for accounting that we have that you know lead companies to disclose so that we need something like that for CO2. But we also need monitoring. It's just non-trivial just to measure these fluxes. So um, that, that'll be an interesting area. So that monitoring is an issue. And the last one I'd put out there, is I'm not really sure it's an issue or not, but it's called uh, moral hazard. This idea that if we have this ability to remove CO2, does that take away from our urgency to stop emitting CO2? And that's an open question. I'm happy to talk more about that. But that's another issue that comes up with these technologies. So I think just to sum it up, it's land, energy, materials, monitoring, and then this moral hazard issue. Yeah, that's a, that's a really helpful list. And um, uh a quick log roll for my wife. My wife has actually uh, written several papers on moral hazard risks associated with CDR and geoengineering. And uh, yeah, she's actually, I noticed she was actually cited several times in the state of the CDR report. So maybe we'll have to get Caitlin on the show sometime to talk about that. Um, so last question, Greg, before we go to our top of the stack segment, um, which I imagine some of our listeners have already been thinking about during our conversation, which is that I think there's a pretty substantial number of folks in the environmental advocacy community who are really skeptical of CDR, kind of all flavors of CDR. And that's maybe partly because of this moral hazard risk, but I think maybe even in larger part because they sort of see it as a tool that could enable continued fossil fuel use at scale. So how do you think about that issue? You know, what do you say to people when they raise it with you? And, and how do you think we should be thinking about CDR in terms of whether it's a substitute or a complement for emissions reduction? 
Yeah, a good question. I'm glad you raised this. So the first thing I say is that the number one priority is to reduce emissions deeply and immediately. And we're talking about reducing emissions by, you know, like by 90% over the next 30 years to be on track with what we agreed on at the Paris Agreement, which is to keep warming below two degrees and make efforts to keep it below 1.5 degrees. We're already at 1.2 degrees, so there's not a lot of room. So number one priority is to reduce emissions. And whether we have lots of CDR or little CDR, it does not change that imperative. We still need to reduce emissions. So that's number one. Um, I guess on the other thing I'd say is that I get the concern because I've heard it. So even though we, if we look at carbon dioxide removal and if we're successful at doing all of this scale up and dealing with the monitoring issues and getting the policies right, we're talking about doing 10 gigatons of removal in say 2050. And today we're doing 40 gigatons of emissions into the atmosphere. So we need to get from 40 to zero and maybe we get 10 of that 40 as uh, carbon dioxide removal. That's a pretty big number though. But that means that 75 and maybe it's more like 80 or 90% of the effort has to be on reducing emissions. So just because we have CDR, it doesn't take away this need to reduce uh, emissions. And the other thing I'd say is that because these technologies are just becoming commercialized, it takes time for them to scale. So we need to work on them now and invest in them now, have policies, have DAC hubs, have people going into this industry if we're going to get to gigaton scale by the time of net zero, which is something like 30 years, we need to be investing in them now. And so, you know, there's a few scenarios where you don't have novel CDR. And I work on that in other projects where we try to figure out how could we reduce emissions by just getting much more efficient and careful about emissions and about our lifestyle. And I think that's exciting work and seems really promising. But even those scenarios that don't require novel CDR, like direct air capture and biochar and BECS, they still require a lots of conventional carbon dioxide removal, like the forestry part. So even if we get really aggressive on reducing emissions by reducing energy demand, we still need carbon dioxide removal. So I'm sympathetic to this issue um, because I've heard it. I've heard companies say, well, we don't need to reduce our emissions because we're just going to offset them. And so the idea is, okay, there's residual emissions. Maybe 10% of the emissions are going to be really hard to get out. And so to me, that says, well, that means 90% of the work is to reduce emissions. And there's a little bit left over at the end. But to some companies and even countries, they're like, well, that's our emissions. We're all in the residual. So, you know, so we're going to do the direct air capture or the carbon dioxide removal. And that's when you start to say, okay, there really is an issue with this moral hazard. But from a societal viewpoint, we need CDR. If we're going to have it in a large scale, we need to start work on it now. And so, and there's an imperative to reduce emissions. So it really doesn't take away from that. But you can see how smaller companies or countries with narrow interests uh, might focus on on CDRs as the answer to their own emissions. But from a, a global view and a societal view, number one priority is to reduce emissions. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. 
Um, well, Greg, this has been a fascinating conversation, and you know we could talk for for much more uh, time if if we had the time, and would certainly encourage people to check out the report and dig deep because there's a lot of really fascinating material in it. Um, but let's close it out now with uh, our top of the stack question, where we ask you to recommend something that you've read or you've watched or you heard uh, you think is really great, uh, and that you'd recommend to our listeners. So, Greg, what's on the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? Top of my reading stack. Yeah, I would say two things I've uh, read and watched in the last just couple of weeks relevant here. One is a book that's just coming out called Scrubbing the Sky by Paul McKendrick. And it really goes into how these technologies of carbon removal are being developed by interviewing founders of these companies and politicians and understanding how they're getting scaled up, where they're coming from. I think it's really interesting to kind of see the human side of how a new technology gets developed and the commingling of market signals with intrinsic motivation. Really good read, well-reported, uh, and an interesting read if you want to hear more about that, Scrubbing the Sky. And then the other is uh, a movie, a film I watched in the last couple of days called Purple Mountains. And it's a, it's a movie um, done by a professional snowboarder named Jeremy Jones about how to get different types of people on board with climate change. And he's someone who spent his whole... Uh, life in the mountains and assessing snow and seeing the changes. And he started an organization called Protect Our Winners with this idea of getting people that enjoy the outdoors to get engaged on climate change. And I think one of the most exciting things from watching that movie is seeing the different types of people that are interested in the outdoors that have different political persuasions. And I think there's a real uh, potential to broaden the coalition of people to support climate change mitigation and, and carbon dioxide removal. So that's that's a good a good one as well, Purple Mountains. Excellent. Well, those both sound great. Thank you so much for the recommendations and thanks for joining us once again. Uh, Greg Nemet from the University of Wisconsin uh, at Madison. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Great. Enjoy talking with you. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me. Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.